Today, uh, we're finishing chapter 1, so we're going to pick it up today in verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, follow along as I read. Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn now to your word, Lord, I am so thankful to know that our faith is based upon a sure foundation, undeniable truths that we can look to and point to. And Lord, I pray today that you would remind our hearts concerning these things today, that you would stir us up, that you would encourage us as we study your word together, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a study was given, a survey actually was given, where they asked the question, do you believe there is such thing as absolute truth? And of those who responded to this survey, only 28% of those who responded said that they believed that there was such thing as absolute truth. Now, to be honest with you, that really didn't surprise me that much because that's the mindset of our world today. We live in a postmodern culture and we live in a culture where people argue, how can anyone lay claim to having the corner on the market when it comes to truth? I mean, we all have our own values and we have our own experiences. And so the fact that only 28% of those surveyed said that they believed in absolute truth, that really doesn't surprise me, but this is what did surprise me. Of those who were born-again Christians who were surveyed, those who claimed to be followers of Christ, only 23% of them said there is such thing as absolute truth, which means that over 77% of the Christian followers, those who, who claim to follow Christ, They're saying that there is no absolute truth. They're saying that nothing can be known for certain. That surprised me. That grieved me. And you know, for those who fall into that category, whether Christian or not, my response is this. What do you do with the claims of Christ? I mean, Jesus made some pretty bold claims. For instance, like John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Guys, that is an absolute statement right there. Jesus said, he didn't say, I'm one of the ways, or I am you know, a way. He said, no, 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 I am the way, and there is no other. What do you do with that? You know, we're living at a time when truth is under attack. 
We're living at a time when the church is under attack. You've, you've heard of this phrase that's being thrown around a lot today, that of deconstructing. And we see people that are deconstructing their faith. They're breaking down. Do I really believe in, you know, in, in Christianity? I really believe in what my parents taught me, what I was brought up in. And a lot of times they, they are doing this. They're struggling with their faith in this way because, you know, they were hurt by the church or they were wronged by the church or they've seen the hypocrisy in the church. And, you know, I just have to say that in any church, because a church is like a family, you know, there is going to be hurts and there's going to be wrongs and there's going to be hypocrisy. You know why? Because the church is full of sinners. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. All right. <laughs> That's the reality. The church is full of broken people. So, so I like to say to those who argue in that way, hey, 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 don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. Others are deconstructing because the Bible really doesn't line up with their idea of morality on certain things. There are those who say, you know, I just don't like what the Bible has to say about premarital sex. I mean, me and, you know, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, we, we love each other. I know we're not married, but, you know, hey, we re- we're committed. We, we love each other. And so they wrestle with that. I just don't think that the, 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 the Bible, you know, the church, they're just, they're, they're archaic. Or the, the, the Bible's view on homosexuality, that it's a sin. I meet people who say, you know, I just struggle with this because I know this really, really great gay couple and they're super nice and they're committed to one another and they love each other. I mean, they even got married. I mean, how can that be wrong? And I, and I got to tell you, I understand that sentiment. I know gay couples that are super nice and, and that type of thing as well. And so they wrestle with that. Or those who wrestle with, you know, I just can't, you know, with other religions that, that they're wrong. I discipled a guy years ago who his mom died. And she wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. She believed in something else. And, and he said, you know, I just can't believe that my mom's in hell. So I, and he walked away. No longer follows the Lord because he's like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm sure that you also know somebody like that. Well, today's message is going to be, I think, a good and needed reminder for some of you. And for others, I think it's going to be exactly what you need to hear because you also have been struggling in your faith. Over the last 18 months, there have been a lot of Christians who have been struggling because things haven't panned out the way they thought they were going to pan out in this country, in their own personal lives, in friendships, and in relationships. And so there's a lot of disappointment that has been going around. And maybe you found yourself questioning God. Or maybe you found yourself disappointed with God. Maybe it was over the loss of a loved one, or maybe it was over the loss of a job, or maybe it was over the loss of a friendship, or, or the loss of a, of a dream. And so you find yourself, and there's a lot of people right now, you know, in the church that kind of find themselves in this place where they're just sort of existing from day to day. Well, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of those to whom Peter was writing to here in this letter. Allow me to remind you once again of the setting. Peter's writing 
to a group of Christians at a time when persecution was at an all-time high under the Roman Empire. Christians were being arrested, Christians were losing their jobs, and Christians were losing their lives. And I'm sure some of these people that were going through this thought that when they became a follower of Jesus Christ, that their life was going to get better. I mean, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And they're like, yeah, I want that. But instead of their life getting better, it got worse. I mean, think of Peter himself. I mean, he starts following Jesus because they believe they've found the Messiah, right? He's thinking, I'm going to be on the ground floor of this new kingdom. In fact, I might be one of his top advisors. But then he finds out that Jesus was coming to not overthrow the Romans, but to establish an entirely different type of kingdom. And Peter, for his following of Jesus Christ, would become an outcast in society and eventually would lose his life. And so Peter here is writing toward the end of his life to a group of believers who are in that kind of situation. And he's telling them that there are certain things that he wants them to know. In fact, the words know and knowledge are key words in 2 Peter. They're used 16 times in these three chapters. There are things he says that I want you to know, that I don't want you to be, you know, doubting, that I want you to have a firm foundation on the these things, and this is what we must understand, is that the Christian faith is based upon undeniable truths. And this is what Peter is laying out in the passage before us. We could call this Christianity 101. And this paragraph is really a setup for what we're going to get into next week in chapter 2, because in chapter 2, Peter starts addressing the false teachers that had crept into the church. And there were several of them, but one of the main ones was the Gnostics. You've probably heard of that term. The Gnostics were the people in the know. They claimed to know what others didn't know. They claimed to have a special knowledge. And the Gnostics were denying the deity of Christ. They were denying the claims of Christ. They were denying the coming of Christ. And so Peter is going to speak about that. But before he does, he sets this up by what Peter does is he counteracts those false teachings by pointing to two undeniable tenets of the Christian faith. Two tenets that we can point to as evidences for the validity of our faith. And those two tenets are the eyewitness testimonies and the prophetic word. Let's look at those today. First of all, the eyewitness testimony. Verse 16 again, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word fables there could actually be translated myths. In the Greek, it's the word muthos. They get their word myths from that. And the word muthos or myths, when it's used in the New Testament, is always used in a derogatory and negative sense. It's always speaking about the pagan mythologies and the, the Greek mythologies. And if you've ever studied Greek mythology before, you know, I mean, it, it's bizarre what was going on, you know, all the gods, you know, fighting with one another and sleeping with one another. I mean, Greek mythology kind of was like the, 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 soap opera before the soap opera. I mean, that's what it was like. I mean, just bizarre stuff. And Peter says, we didn't bring to you cunningly devised fables or myths. 
We didn't bring, you know, some story that was made up from somebody's bizarre imagination, but what we taught you was the byproduct of eyewitness testimony. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he says, for he received from God, speaking of Jesus, received from God the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, and we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Guys, one of the foundations of the Christian faith is that it is built on eyewitness testimony. And Peter says here, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he talking about? Peter is referring to an event that you can read about in Matthew chapter 17. It's when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount Hermon, And he was transfigured before them where they began to see his face and it began to glow. It began to shine like the sun. His garments turned white. And then two guys from the past, Moses and Elijah, joined him there on the mountain and he was talking to to them. And, and, And Peter's saying, we saw this. We were eyewitnesses of this. We saw Jesus shining. And Peter was overwhelmed in that moment. And when Peter got overwhelmed, it was never a good thing. Because when Peter got overwhelmed, you know what he'd start doing? He'd start talking. Some of you do that. I do that sometimes, right? You get overwhelmed, you get nervous, and you start talking. And usually when I do that, I say something stupid, and that's what Peter does here. Peter's like just blown away by this miraculous moment, and he blurts out. He says, Lord, it's great for us to be here. And you almost expect Jesus to go, duh, you know. It's like, that's why I brought you here, right? And then Peter says, So let me build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's like, let's just stay here. And while Peter's still speaking, he gets interrupted by a voice from heaven. God the Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, this is not a time to be building or doing anything. This is a time to just be listening. Tune in to my son. This was quite an amazing experience. And Peter was an eyewitness, and eyewitnesses are crucial in a court case in a court of law. They're crucial. And they're asked the question, eyewitnesses, well, what did you see? And you explain what you see, and then they're cross-examined. Well, how do you know that you really saw what you think you saw? And Peter's answer would be, because I was there. But then he'd say, but it wasn't just me. James and John, they were there as well. You can ask them. And the more eyewitnesses that you have, the stronger the case is going to be. In fact, listen to John. This is John's testimony. He, he writes this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. And we proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may 
have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. Now this is what's interesting to me. Don't miss this. Of all the things that these guys saw in following Jesus, I mean, they they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus heal all types of diseases. Blind man, suddenly he has his sight. Lepers suddenly are totally cleansed. People who had all different types of diseases completely healed. They saw Jesus raise the dead. They saw Jesus stand up in a boat in the midst of a storm and say to to the wind and the waves, be still. And that storm became like a sea of glass. So this is my question. Why does Peter point to this event? On, on the Mount of Transfiguration as his evidence. Well, like I said before, some of these false teachers were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. They were denying the fact that he was God in human flesh. And so Peter points to the moment when they saw his glory. When they saw the glory of Jesus. You see, when Jesus left heaven and came to this earth and became a man, he was fully man, yet fully God. And the glory of who he was as God, was concealed in his humanity. They didn't see that. They didn't see his glory except on this moment. On this moment, on that mountain, the glory that was concealed in his humanity began to come forth, and his face began to shine like the sun, and his garments became white. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. But notice also the word that he uses there when he says, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word coming is a very important word. In the the Greek, it's the word parousia, and it's almost always used to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It literally means, speaks of of the arrival or the actual presence. And so this is why this is important. This is what Peter's saying. He says, we were getting a preview of coming attractions. That's what was happening on that mountain. When we saw him in his glory, we were getting a preview of coming attractions. You see, when Jesus came the first time, his glory was concealed. When he comes the second time, his glory is going to be revealed. Everyone's going to see it. When Jesus came the first time, no one even you know, realized that he was the Son of God. When he comes the second time, there will be no doubt. And John, in, in Revelation chapter 21, he writes about the new heaven and new earth, and he says something there that's so amazing. He says, you know, when the new heaven and new earth are come into play, he says, we're not even going to need the sun because the glory of Jesus will light up the city. That's all we're going to need. His presence in that place will be enough. Paul the Apostle, he caught a glimpse of that glory. Before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was the greatest enemy of the, of the Christian faith. He, he didn't like Jesus and his followers. And so he was on a mission to take Christians and have them arrested and put into prison. And some of them even killed. And he's on his way to the city of Damascus on this mission when it says that he sees a light that is brighter than the sun at noonday. He falls to the ground. He's blinded. And he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds and says, it's Jesus 
whom you're persecuting. And in that moment on that day, Saul of Tarsus goes from being the greatest enemy of Jesus and his followers to his most ardent follower and servant. He was born again. Why? Because he had an encounter with the risen Lord. He saw Jesus in his glory. And so the first undeniable truth that Peter points to is his eyewitness testimony. We we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But I want you to note this. The greatest evidence for the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that there is an empty tomb, and no one has been able to refute that, and that also is built on eyewitness testimony. You see, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples several times. And when he would appear to them, he would say, hey guys, touch me, touch my hands, touch my side. He wanted them to know that he wasn't a ghost. He would eat with them. So he'd say, touch me, I'm, this is flesh and blood, I've risen again from the dead. Remember Mary Magdalene, she was the first to see him on Easter, the first Easter Sunday. And she grabs a hold of him and he's like, no, 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 let me go and go tell the others. And you know, it was flesh and blood. Now, aren't those, those the people, skeptics that say, but couldn't these guys have just made this all up? I mean, come on, I mean, they got, you know, popular and they got wealthy, didn't they, for, you know, claiming that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Read your history books, guys. They didn't get popular. They didn't get wealthy. In fact, they only became popular after they died. They became, you know, our heroes of the faith. But in the moment, in real time, they were outcasts. They would lose their lives for declaring that Jesus was Lord and not Caesar, and that Jesus was Lord because he rose again from the dead. I mean, here's the record of the disciples. James was the first martyr. He was beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was also crucified upside down. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified. Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus were both crucified. Philip was shot full of arrows. Matthew was skinned alive. James the Less was stoned and then clubbed to death. Thomas was pierced through with spears. And John, they tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't cook. So they ended up banishing him to the island of Patmos. All of these men went through all of those things because they wouldn't deny that Jesus Christ was Lord and that Jesus Christ had risen. And it wasn't like they were all together. They were in different places. It wasn't like a peer pressure. It was like, no, I can't deny him because he is alive. And don't just take the disciples. What about James and Jude? You've heard of them. There's books of the Bible named after them. You know who they were? James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. And get this, during Jesus' earthly ministry, neither one of them believed in him. Neither one of them thought that he was the Messiah. In fact, there's a point you can read in the Gospels when they wanted to have him committed because Jesus is going around saying that he's the son of God and James and Jude get together and it's like, hey, let's go find our brother. We've got you know, to put him somewhere. He's lost his mind. But after the resurrection... When they encounter their brother, those two, you know, they, they, they write in the Bible. They, they write their books and they say, James and Jude, the servants of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Our brother, he's, we're his servants. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the one who rose again from the dead. I mentioned Saul of Tarsus, his encounter. He goes from being the greatest enemy to the most powerful and, and you know, ardent follower and servant of Jesus. 
wrote a whole bunch of books in the New Testament. We read that there were over 500 people who saw him at once risen from the dead. Now, some say, well, it was mass hallucination. You know that's scientifically impossible? Scientists say that that can't happen. If, the, if a group sees the same thing and hears the same thing, that is no longer classified as a hallucination. There's something happening there that is real that needs to be accounted for. And this is why it's so powerful when we read that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He makes that absolute statement, and then he backs it up by dying on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and then three days later, rising again from the dead to give life to anyone who would put their faith in him. And so the first undeniable tenet of the Christian faith that Peter points to is the eyewitness testimony. The second undeniable tenet that he points to is the prophetic word. Look at verse 19. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter says our faith is not just built on eyewitness testimony, but it's also built on the prophetic word confirmed. I like the way the King James Version puts it. It says that we have a more sure word of prophecy. And guys, this is one of the things that makes the Bible very, very unique. This book that you hold in your hands and hopefully hold dear to your hearts, one-third of it is made up of prophecy. People say, why are we doing prophecy updates? Well, you can't really study the Bible without dealing with prophecy because one-third of the Bible is referencing the, the idea of prophecy. And I want you to note this when Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The word interpretation there is actually a poor translation. It actually should be the word origin. The New Living Translation puts it this way. No prophecy ever came from the prophets themselves. So it's speaking about the origin of the text. You see, it's not like David or Peter or Paul were sitting around one day and saying, you know, I got this idea. I think I'm going to write it down and it'll go in this thing called the Bible. No, it's not how it worked. Peter says, he puts it this way, that these men, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea there is that the, the, it didn't originate with them, it originated with God. And what Peter is doing here is he's giving us some insight into how biblical inspiration happens. Paul spoke about inspiration of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he said this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, in other words, and it's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is what is right. For reproof, that is what is not right. For correction, that's how to get right. And then for instruction, that's how to stay right. And Paul says the purpose is so that we would be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, Peter's giving us some insight into how inspiration happens. 
He says, holy men of God spoke as they were what? As they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved is a nautical term. It's a sailing term describing how a sailboat is moved by the wind. It's the, it's the wind that's moving the sailboat, but there's a person, there's a human being that is steering the boat. And that's really kind of the idea of how inspiration happens. The Holy Spirit is moving the idea that is being put forth, but it's being put forth through a human instrument who has a writing style and a personality. That's why when you read the Bible, it it doesn't all sound the same because it's written by different authors. They were being moved, they were being inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're still writing in their own style and in their own personality. And so these men, they were moved by the Holy Spirit, they were writing about things in the future. They were writing about things that they didn't even understand. They were writing about things that they didn't even know and things that would come to pass for a lot of them after they were already dead. And that's the uniqueness of the Bible. The Bible that you're holding in your hands is a book that is full of prophecies and predictions that have come true. Here's some examples. In the book of Genesis, God prophesies that his people, who at that time were just a small little group of people, the the tribe of of followers, the family of Jacob, that they're going to go into Egypt where they will be in bondage for 400 years. And it happens. In that same book, he prophesies that the same people years later will go to a place called Babylon that doesn't even exist. And they'll be in bondage in that place for 70 years. And guess what? It happens. The prophet Isaiah predicted in chapter 45 that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed a hundred years before the actual event. And in that same chapter, in Isaiah chapter 45, he describes, he predicts that a king by the name of Cyrus, he would come along and rebuild that temple. And get this, he writes this 160 years before Cyrus is even born. And Isaiah names him by name. I mean, what's the, the probability of that that's exactly what happens but you know the greatest degree of prophecies in the bible relate to jesus in the old testament there were 300 prophecies that were given concerning the life the death and the resurrection of jesus christ 300 prophecies written in the old testament about when when he would come and jesus fulfilled all 300 of those to the t I'll give you some examples. Here's eight of them. Micah, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, the interesting thing about that is we know the Christmas story, right? And you have Mary and Joseph. They're living in Nazareth. Mary is almost nine months pregnant. She's ready to pop. And so how is God going to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, he moves on the heart of Caesar, the emperor, to decide, you know what? I want to do a census. I want to see how many people I'm ruling over in my kingdom. So everybody needs to go to the place of their birth for this census. And so Joseph, because he was of the tribe of David, he has to leave Nazareth, take his pregnant wife, nine months pregnant, and go to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born. And God sets that all up. It's amazing. It's incredible. 
Zechariah, he prophesied that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey for his triumphal entry. Not a, not a stallion, but, but a donkey. And he prophesied this over 500 years before the event happened. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible, Daniel prophesied the very day that that event was going to occur. He prophesied it to the day over 500 years before the event happened. Zechariah again prophesied over 500 years before that the Messiah would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, not 30 pieces of gold, not 30 pieces of bronze, not, not 20 pieces, no, 30 pieces of silver. He prophesies, and it's exactly what takes place. David in Psalm 22, he speaks and prophesies about how the Messiah is going to die. And what he describes there is death by crucifixion. And he's writing... 500 years or so before crucifixion was even invented as a way to kill people. It's absolutely astounding. Again, Isaiah declared that the Messiah would not make a defense when he was brought to trial, that he would be silent. And Isaiah also prophesied that although the Messiah was to be buried with the wicked because Jesus was crucified between two thieves, that he would end up being buried in the tomb of a rich man. Now, I just ran through eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the T. And using the law of compound probability, what would be the chances of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies written hundreds of years before he was even born? Well, a scientist by the name of Peter Stonier in his book called Science Speaks, he laid out what the probability would be. He said it would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So it's taking a 1 and 17 zeros after it. That is a big, big number. And to explain how big that number was, Stonier described it in this way. One man fulfilling those eight prophecies, it would be like this. If we took the state of Texas and covered the whole state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, okay? And then we take one of those silver dollars and we paint it red. And then we bring some bulldozers in and they move all those silver dollars that are two feet deep all over the, the, the state of Texas. They move them all over and mix them all up. And then you take a guy and blindfold him and just send him off in the course of walking through all the silver dollars. The chances that he would reach down and pick the red silver dollar would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's how crazy it is that Jesus fulfilled eight of those prophecies. But guys, he didn't fulfill just eight of those prophecies. He fulfilled 300 of those prophecies to the T. It's incredible. The prophetic word is an undeniable tenet to the Christian faith. And get this. The fact that Jesus fulfilled 300 of those prophecies concerning his first coming to the T lets us, makes it so that we can rest assured that he's also going to fulfill the prophecies concerning his second coming. That we can have that hope in knowing that Jesus is going to be true to his word and that he's coming again just like he said he would. In fact, Jesus said, when you see these things happening in the world, when you see the, the, the signs that are pointing to the times, he says, look up, lift up your head. 
Don't freak out. He says, lift up your head because your redemption draws near. And Peter alludes to this idea in this statement in verse 19. Notice he says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And here's the key phrase, until. Circle that word until. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Until the day dawns. What day is he talking about? Well, that's code phrase for the day when Jesus returns at his second coming. And the reference to the morning star also speaks when, of when Jesus is coming at his second coming. And one of the things that made the early church guys so incredibly powerful was that they believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus could come again at any moment. And so they were living their lives with the coming again of Christ, with the rapture and the second coming in view. And that's one of the reasons why they were so incredibly powerful. And so Peter is writing here and saying that he was so confident of the reliability and authority of the scriptures that he's counseling us to use the scriptures as our guide. Until Jesus returns. Let's wrap this up. There's three lessons that we can learn from our passage. The first is what we've been talking about. That the Christian faith is built on on the solid foundation of two undeniable tenets. The eyewitness testimony and the prophetic word. The second thing that we see in this text is it's reminding us that men die, but the word of God endures forever. Last week, we noted in verse 15 where Peter writes, and he's looking forward to his impending death, and he says, you will have this. When I'm writing here, you're going to have this as a reminder even after I'm gone. So that's the second thing. Men will die, but the word of God endures forever. And then here's the third thing. Our world is getting darker, but the word of God is shining brighter. The world is getting darker, isn't it? It's getting murky. It's getting gray, but the word shines brighter. And because so many of the things that we see happening in our world today is exactly what the Bible said would be happening in the days leading up to the coming of Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised. And people look at the world today and they think, man, the world is falling apart. And and I say, no, it's falling into place. It's going exactly in the direction that Jesus said that it would be heading into leading up to his return. And we know this. We can rest assured in this. We know how this story wins. Jesus wins. And so we have this hope and we have this confidence. And that means, guys, we need to be ready and we need to be busy about the things of the Lord. And we need to be occupying ourselves with the right things. His heart, His will, His way, and His kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that our foundation is built upon these undeniable tenets of eyewitness testimony that that your followers, they saw you risen from the dead. 
that it's built on the prophetic word and that we can rest assured and have a hope today because, Jesus, you fulfilled those 300 prophecies concerning your first coming to the T that we know that you also are going to fulfill and are fulfilling even right now the prophecies leading up to your second coming. And so, Lord, Lord, in the midst of all of that, I pray that we would be a people who wouldn't be freaking out, that wouldn't be getting distracted by the stuff going on in our world, that we wouldn't be losing sight of the, uh, what the main thing is supposed to be, and that's you, that you're the king, that you're on the throne. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be a people that is focused and ready, that is doing and being occupied with your heart and your will and your way. And I also pray today for anybody here in this place or anybody watching online that doesn't have that assurance of faith. Lord, I pray first for those that have maybe been struggling with their faith. Lord, I pray that today, through this word spoken and the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit just working in hearts, that there would be a sense of just turning back to you, getting their lives and their hearts back in focus. But I also pray for those today who have maybe never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Or those who have walked away, been living in rebellion. God, I pray today would be a day that they would make a decision. That they would take the facts that have been presented here today and they would, they, they would rest upon and allow their faith to rest upon the reality that Jesus, you're the king. You're the one who rose and you're the one who lives and you're the one who's coming back. And that they want to be ready. And today they would open up their hearts to you. And if you're watching online or you're in this room today and that's you, that's where your heart is at, I just want to give you an opportunity right now in the quietness of your own heart to just cry out to Jesus, to just say, Jesus, I need you. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've been doing my own thing. But today I want to begin to follow after you. I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn my heart to you that you might forgive me, that you might cleanse me, that you might do a work in my life. That I could begin to live in that relationship with you and have that assurance that I would know where I'm going when I die. That I would have assurance of knowing that, that, that I know what's happening now in this world. That Jesus, you're the one who wins. That you're the king and I want you to be the king in my heart today. Just just tell him that. As you do right now, in this moment, Jesus is doing a work to forgive you, to cleanse you, to take away your guilt. He's putting his life into you through his Holy Spirit. And he wants to just begin to have you walk with him, get to know him embrace him Lord we thank you for loving us God we thank you for your grace we thank you for the love that you pour out upon us and Lord I pray that we would be a people and we would be Lord a church that would be living in these days in which we're living with a clear focus because our eyes are on you As Joe was praying earlier, God, do a work of revival in our city, but let it first start in our own hearts. 
And we ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. As we wrap up today, if you need prayer, there's some men and women up front here, or there will be in a minute, that would love to pray for you. I would love to encourage you. If you prayed today to, to open up your heart to Jesus, I encourage you to come up and get with one of them. Let them know that. We have a Bible and, and a few other things that we'd love to give you that are going to help you grow in this relationship with Jesus. For all the rest of you, I pray that you would just have an incredible week this week. That you'd keep your eyes on the Lord. That you would know that, hey, the days and times that we're living in, yeah, they're getting crazy, but Jesus is still on the throne. He's got this and he's got you. Let's close with a song.